If you would prepare your hearts for a time of prayer, I'd like to lead us together using the words of a familiar psalm to many of us in the Psalm 103. So would you pray with us together? Lord, would you help us praise you with our whole hearts? May you remind us and never let us forget of the many good things that you do for us. How you forgive all our sins and you have healed our diseases of body and mind and spirit. That you have redeemed us from death and that you crown us with your love and tender mercy. Remind us, Lord, how you fill our lives with good things and that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Lord, you are righteous. And we trust that you give justice to all those who are treated unfairly. You are compassionate and merciful. You are slow to get angry and you are filled with unfailing love. We rejoice that you do not constantly accuse us and you do not remain angry forever. You do not punish us for all of our sins and you do not deal harshly with us even when we deserve it. Because your unfailing love is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. And you have removed our sins, our disease, our disorder from us as far as the east is from the west. And so like a very good parent to their children, you are tender and compassionate to us. You have made the heavens your throne. You are above and around and through all things. And from all of this, you rule over everything. So with the angels, with the armies of angels who serve you and do your will, Lord, would you let us rejoice? Would you give us words and thoughts and actions to praise you and to remember your good work in us and on our behalf. We ask that even the rest of our time in worship tonight would be answer to this prayer. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening to you. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. And at this time, I think our kids are ready to go to a kid's sermon downstairs. So kids under fifth grade, you are welcome to go now. High five a kid as they go by. And I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. I have some friends. They have Bibles. You know the speech. They have Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, You can raise your hand. Somebody would love to bring a Bible to you. You can borrow it or you can have it as a gift. We have Bibles in Spanish and English right back here. For those of you who are practicing your Spanish, practicing your English, your heart language is Spanish or your heart heart language is English. We have Bibles for both. So I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. For the last two weeks, we've read out of this text and we're going to continue that this week and next week as we honor the saints 
here in, uh, here in November. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word, starting with verse 33. We recognize and we honor the saints because of the words here. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in 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 a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and others' backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, a cloud, a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you will not become weary and give up. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So in November, as we've said, in November each year, we, we tell the story or we tell stories of saints. And the, person, uh, the person's story that we want to hear today is the story of Howard Thurman. He was born on November the 18th of 1899. Tomorrow would be his birthday. And he died on April the 10th in 1981. Howard Thurman is heralded as one of the most important religious figures of the 20th century. He was a teacher, he was a sage, a a social change agent, and he was a spiritual leader. Uh, Thurman was born the grandson of slaves and is actually unknown in most churches, but he uh, he went on to become the spiritual mentor and pastor of Martin Luther King Jr., he was an important voice in the, uh, an important moral voice in the civil rights movement. And he was a proponent and active voice of nonviolence after he spent some time in India with Gandhi. And Gandhi not only shaped his understanding and his ideas of nonviolence and nonviolence as resistance, but strangely enough, Gandhi also deepened his understanding of the cross. Now, like so many of us, his growing up years were his formative ones. Uh, But like, unlike so many of us, the narrative that encapsulated his life was one of constant inequality and injustice. He grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, and while uh, the number of blacks and whites were equal in population at that time, their worlds were miles apart. 
he professed that his Christian experience came only in relationship to black people, as white Christians' experience of faith and Christianity came only in relationship to other whites. White people, he said, were not a part of my magnetic field of awareness. And if you ever hear any of the recordings of Dr. Thurman, he's got a deep tone and a sing-songy preacher voice that makes you just get captured in what he says. The early part of the 20th century, the time where he was born, was a time in which the Ku Klux Klan identified itself as a Christian organization and uh, it's, it was a time also when people left their churches, they would gather after singing songs of faith, to observe people's lynchings. And for the most part, white Christian clergy and laity refused to say something or, or they were tepid in what they said when it came to these horrific acts. As a boy, Howard's father had a good job in Daytona Beach for a black man. He was working on the railroad. They were able to buy their first house. But when Howard was seven, his father died and his mother was forced to work doing laundry and service jobs for white people in town. So he was raised by his grandmother. This is a picture of her. Her name is Nancy Ambrose. And she had a a formative impact on him. Born in the 1840s, the first 20 years of her life, Nancy Ambrose worked on a plantation as a slave. She didn't speak hardly ever about those first years to Howard, but there was one story that she told him over and over and over, as well as uh, telling his sisters as well. Well, once a year, she would said, a black minister from another plantation was permitted to come hold religious services. And he would always end the service in the same way, regardless of the topic, regardless of the biblical text. He would stand up and he would say to the people, you are not slaves. You are God's children. And as children, uh, they would all sit and wait as they listened to the story. They would wait for that moment because she would cast off a, a faraway look and then her back would straighten out. And then he said there was a small stiffening of a smile that would appear on her face. And what was translated to them as little children was that the creator of existence also created me. This was the lesson that she gave Howard and he realized that the author of creation created me. And he said, with that sort of backing, I could then absorb all of the violences of life. And she made sure that this was his primary identity. This was salvation for Howard Thurman. He felt that the true spiritual problem was that too often people who stand on both sides of a racial, of the racial front lines were Christians. And he called this the great tragedy. He said the idea that human beings should be separated by human made barriers built up by dogmas and doctrines disguised as dogmas and doctrines, ethnicities or race is the tragedy. Now, we've all heard that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And Howard believed that Christianity was weakest when it was brought face to face with the color bar. Now, while this was difficult for him, it also informed him spiritually and emotionally 
and theologically. Because his grandmother could not read, she insisted that Howard attended school. And then when he was home, she would have, she would have him read the Bible to her. But she forbade him from reading Paul's letters because those were the passages that slave owners would quote on a regular basis. She resisted the notion that one person made in the image of God was better than another person who was made in that same image. So Howard would focus on the Gospels and he found new insight as he read about the person and the work and the ministry of Jesus. And these formative years caused Howard Thurman to ask, is there any help to be found in the religion of Jesus that can be of value here? For him, religion was real. Religion, spirituality, should have been tangible. He constantly mulled over this question. He asked, did Jesus deal with this kind of fear ever? How did he deal with it? What did he say? But more importantly, what did he do? Well, Thurman describes himself as a sensitive and very lonely child who suffered a great deal because of racial conflict. And most children have invisible friends, but Howard's best friends were quite visible. In fact, his best friend was a big old oak tree in his backyard. And he said this is the beginning where he began to see the divine in nature. He, he said, I discovered that the mighty oak tree and I had a unique relationship. I could sit with my back against its trunk. I, 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 when I did that, I would reach down into the quiet places of my spirit, take out the bruises and all of my joys, and I could unfold them. And I could talk to that old oak tree and know that I was understood. Most people think that you only experience God in church. But Howard Thurman did not believe that this was the only place to experience God. The European experience of the divine has traditionally come in dogmas and in doctrine. But according to Howard Thurman, the African experience of the divine comes in the very elements of the earth. The divine, he said, is experienced in nature. And he understood this in full measure, starting at a very young age. It was when he would wander into the woods or onto the beach where he found God. It was in those places where God met him. And he said, as a young person who suffered because of racial conflict, I found that the more that I was there, I turned to prayer or what I would later discover, discover to be meditation. And the more time alone I spent in the woods or on the beach, the freer I became in my own spirit. And the more realistic became my ambitions to get an education. And that is exactly what he did. He was the first black student to graduate the eighth grade in the Daytona Beach school system. And he was the valedictorian of his class. And Florida offered almost no options for black students, but Thurman was already beginning to excel. He had an incredible work ethic, so he was accepted into the Jacksonville Baptist Academy. And while he was there, he wrote a personal letter to Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, who would be the future president of Howard University and who would become his friend and his mentor. I think this is really, really remarkable. Like just Dr. Paul just said a few minutes ago. And like others have described, 
this, this writing of this letter speaks to the incredible need that young people have when it comes to mentors. It speaks to the incredible need that young people have, that, that they need people in their lives who can see the God-given image within them, identify it, and then call them to that. Well, in writing Dr. Johnson, what he was doing was he was asking for a mentor, but in some ways, he was asking for a father because he poured his heart out in the letter. At only 18 years old, he was already a person committed to service. This was happening during World War I. And he said, I want to be a minister of the gospel. And so you know I'm patriotic and I'm willing to fight for democracy. But Reverend Johnson, my people need me. So pray for me. Because on every hand I am discouraged by the choice of ministry. And sometimes I think, nobody cares. Well, eventually... Thurman uh, enrolled at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, which was a college established to educate free slaves after the Civil War. And one of his classmates was a man whose name was Martin Luther King Sr. That it was the president of the university, a man by the name of John Hope, that made an initial and maybe one of the deepest impressions on him. John Hope was a white man. And President Hope's first words when the, when, the, uh, when the people gathered to hear on the first day, one of his first words at the lectern was this, young gentlemen. Thurman said that these words startled the young men because they were not accustomed as members of the disinherited community uh, because they were not used to these words being spoken with such esteem to them and such affirmation. He said it was like pouring iron into their spines. It was at Morehouse College that Thurman got involved in the Young Men's Christian Association and the Fellowship of Reconciliation, where he really started to explore the idea of nonviolence. And the question that he wrestled with most there at Morehouse College was, how would he, a black man, survive in a world of hatred and oppression? What was he to do? It's here that he starts to recognize that it takes incredible strength, amazing strength. He starts, he starts to recognize the strength that it takes not to hate, not to fear, but to deal with others as equals. Before he leaves Morehouse, he's read every single book in the library on all of the topics. He graduates valedictorian and he sets his sights on ministry. Howard is one of two black people accepted into Rochester Theological Seminary. And he, and he starts to learn here who his brothers and his sisters are, even those that are beyond his Christian family. Now, during his tenure in seminary, he was so captivating by the, the ideas that he brought. And his ideas were so moving that he was invited to speak regularly in, in white churches while the KKK kept, kept close eye on him. But then in the evenings, he started to travel around Rochester late into the night, teaching people what he had been learning in the seminary. He was teaching maids and servants, and he was convinced that he must share what he's learning with others that do not have the opportunities that he has. He started a school. It was at this time that about the time that he's done with Morehouse College that, that he stumbles across a book by a Quaker mystic whose name was Rufus Jones. 
And, and Quaker theology is one of quiet silence. It's one of mysticism. And, and it has this understanding that each person is born with an inner light. And they constantly focused, put an emphasis on social justice. This theology fit Howard Thurman. So he went to study with Rufus Jones. He heads to Haverford College in Philadelphia to get to know him and study under him. And it it, it just needs to be said because of time that no one can accurately describe the kind of influence that Jones had on Tom, on uh, Thurman, uh, on Howard Thurman. So Thurman was married twice. He married a woman named Katie Kelly, a social worker who was an activist in 1926. A year later, they had a daughter whose name was Olive. But Katie died a few years later after contracting tuberculosis while she served people who had that disease. And he settled into teaching because he needed to take care of his daughter. And while he is there, he falls in love with a a pastor's daughter whose name is Sue Bailey. And Sue Bailey, on her own merit, is a saint as well, a champion and an intellectual giant. She created scholarships and did all kinds of other activities of social justice, and they became a team of equals. Well, in 1935, uh, Thurman goes to teach at Howard University, which is a mainly black university. And while he's there, he's working on another question. And the question is, how do we overcome barriers of race? denominations, and barriers of faith. Well, his work was to cross boundaries because he thought if we could cross boundaries, we could fight the status quo. So soon he's named the dean of the chapel and he introduces this question to the student body population and he does it through unusual means uh, that the chapel and the university had never seen before. He was the first one to interject doctrine and liturgy with, with uh, experimental forms of worship, and he interjects it with theater and music and dancing. And the way, the, his way, this was his way to combine the identities of, of different kinds of people group, groups, different kinds of denominations, and different kinds of people with faith, different faith backgrounds into a single worship experience. He's combine, he, what he's doing is he's combining traditional, a traditional theological approach to religious experience to his own understanding of an individual religious experience. He thought that it was important to connect with God in the stories of others and their experiences, and he felt that it was an essential importance in matters of faith to grapple with great ideas. So it was in these kinds of settings that he would introduce ancient practices alongside these alternative methods like theater and dance and different kinds of music. And as he wrestled with these philosophical questions, he would call others to do the same by instituting then these long periods of silence. So there would be music, dance, word, silence. Now the questions that he posed were not rhetorical questions but he expected that in the silence there would be the answers that he was speaking and that he was seeking in 1935 in collaboration with the ymca howard thurman went on an international trip to sri lanka myanmar and india that changed uh, changed him forever it deepened him 
All the people that had traveled to these places before were white missionaries. And the assumption was that Howard Thurman was a traditional Christian missionary sent to prophetize the Hindu people. When he arrived, he experienced firsthand the struggle that was going on in India. Since 1958, India had been dominated by British rule. And Thurman was appalled by the way he saw the people being treated. He was horrified by imperialism and he connected what was happening in India to the systems of oppression that were happening in the USA. Uh, He was overcome by this sight that millions of people in India, the poor and the marginalized, became known as the untouchables. And he was shocked by how very few in power could control the millions He determined that the control was psychological and the control was spiritual. He found that these people believed they were untouchable. They believed that they were outcasts. And he made the connection that the religious of Jesus, he made the connection there that the religion of Jesus was a religion for the outcast, the untouchable, and the disinherited. And while he was there, a Hindu lawyer confronted him He was shocked, this Hindu lawyer was shocked as to why a black man from America was a Christian since those who dealt with slave trafficking were white Christians. He said John Newton, the slave trader, was once the one who wrote How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds and he was the one who wrote Amazing Grace. He made his money from the slave trade. One of the, in fact, the lawyer said to him, one of the names of the British vessels was the name Jesus. He then questioned why Thurman would come to India when Christian ministers who quoted the Apostle Paul saved sanction to the religion of the slave system. He said, in this Christian nation, the nation you're from, you are segregated, you are lynched, you are burned. Even in the church there is segregation. And then he said to Thurman, I am a Hindu. I do not understand. Here you come to my country standing deep with the Christian faith and tradition. I do not wish to seem rude to you, but sir, I think you are a traitor to all the darker peoples of the earth. I am wondering what you, an intelligent man, can say in defense of your position. Why would you come as a representative of Christianity? Howard Thurman said they talked for a number of hours, but this is what he said to him. I... I'm not here to represent the religion about Jesus. That religion is the one that oppresses me. And that is the religion that has to do with the subjugation of your people. However, the religion of Jesus is a liberating religion. This is a religion the oppressed can own because Jesus himself was oppressed. You've heard it in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus reads out of the scroll of Isaiah. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, set the captive free. This is the very character of the Christian religion. And this is what Howard Thurman believed in. You know, the Church of the Nazarene hosts what we call a general assembly every four years. And we've been doing it since 1908. There was a general assembly in 1964, and there was a general assembly in 1968. And you know, 1964, 1968, that was right in the middle of this country's political upheaval. 
school integration was taking place. Churches were being bombed because of racial bias and hostility. Men were being, men and women were being hung from trees. Vi- Vietnam was a, in a fever pitch. And we know that in 1968 was the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, in the middle of the civil rights movement during the assemblies of 1964 and 1968, the Church of the Nazarene wasn't talking about this at all. Do you know what we were talking about? Instead, we were spending our time discussing trite manners, whether or not social dance and going to the theater was a holiness activity. Uh, This leads me to ask my own questions. Will we forget that salvation, our theology of atonement, is a theology of liberation, and it is worth committing ourselves to, and anything less is unholy. At the genesis of the Church of the Nazarene in 1908, the founder said that they were going to build a movement built on a three-legged stool. They were going to be wholly committed to cities and the poor. Brzee, who was our founder, said, we cannot get along without rich people, or we can get along without rich people, but we cannot get along without preaching the gospel to the poor. His theology was one of solidarity with outcasts. When he built his buildings, he said, every board must scream, the poor are welcome here. The second thing that, they had, that the church built its identity on was this. The church had committed itself to issues, to social issues. Education, poverty, political freedom, addiction, abolition were all issues that were concerning for our church. And the third thing was this, the church was connected in a single doctrine, a doctrine of hope called the doctrine of entire sanctification. And this doctrine is rooted in liberation and freedom. In some ways, it was Howard Thurman's doctrine. And we had forgotten about it. And God help us if we still forget. That's the reason why we tell his story. It was Thurman's notion, as it was in our first days, that Christianity is actually a religion for those whose backs are against the wall. And he wanted to know, how does the religious experience that comes in Jesus connect to the liberation of those who consider themselves untouchables, those who have their backs against the wall? He wondered, he he thought to himself, he wondered if Gandhi's nonviolent crusade, could that be translated to the United States? And his meeting with Gandhi becomes this profound moment for Thurman. He becomes a man causing social change through nonviolence, and he saw this actually as a spiritual expression. Well, Gandhi, when he met with Howard Thurman, had Thurman sing, were you there when you crucified my Lord? And he has this deep voice, and when he was finished, it was Gandhi who reminded Thurman that the cross is the expression, the very meeting place where all of the human suffering and misery that is touched, uh, where all of that comes together and is touched by something that lifts it and redeems it. For Thurman, the nonviolent movement was a spiritual movement. He taught it wherever he went, he preached it. In 1944, then he began to practice it because Thurman then is invited to San Francisco, California 
to begin the first ever multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith church. It was called the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. And he believed the ministry of Jesus was that ministry which continued to push the boundaries of and, and human communities flourish best when the borders are always given way to the unknown brothers and sisters. This is not something he invented. This comes straight out of Ephesians, of Ephesians chapter 2. This comes straight out of Paul. Paul spoke about the barriers of hostility and said that in Christ these are broken. Thurman always pushed against the artificial boundaries that were established of, by, by race and tradition and ethnicity and, herit, and, and heritage. The experiences of unity among the people, he said, are far more important and crucial than concepts, prejudices, ideologies, and faith. Those things that might divide. His church, the Fellowship Church, in San Francisco becomes this sign. It becomes almost a symbol for what's possible. People begin to take notice. And if you're wondering, this is what is in my heart for this church as well. In 1949, it's when he releases his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that Thurman really hits the mainstream. In fact, he, I, I would encourage you to read it. I've read it a couple times. In fact, it's said that this book was carried in the briefcase and read by Dr. King every day. In the book, it, just, it has these three main ideas. That Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was poor. Jesus was a poor Jew from a minority group. And if, if Jesus had been kicked in the dirt by a Roman soldier, he would just be another Jew in the ditch. For African Americans at that time, this was the wow moment. Because for the first time, they weren't getting a European version of Jesus. To them, Jesus was treated in the way they were. Jesus could be seen as human. And slowly and surely, Thurman is quietly connecting in this book. He's quietly connecting the experience of Jesus with those who are poor and those whose backs are against the wall. And up until this moment, Christianity has been primarily a European religion with its theology rooted in a spiritual afterlife, rooted in dogmas and doctrine. And, and, and for them, there was only one way to experience God, almost a method. You come to church, you pray a certain prayer, you do liturgy in a certain way. But in his book, Thurman anchors Jesus in the black experience and he also anchors the black experience in Jesus. Howard Thurman insists that Jesus Jesus doesn't want to be worshipped as much as he insisted on being followed. And he believed that everyone should follow the teachings of Jesus. In 1953, something monumental happened when Thurman was invited to become the dean of the Marsh Chapel of the mainly white Boston University. Here, he's, here his task was to build those bridges over faith expressions. He, he was building bridges over barriers uh, uh, by bringing three traditions together, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish traditions. And he takes, again, week, weekly worship in a new direction in the chapel. There's theater, and there's non-traditional worship music, and there's modern dance. And, and he incorporates long periods of silence in his weekly worship. And the reason he does that is he believed that each one of us have our own personal connection to the Spirit. 
called it the sound of the genuine. And he said, something is within you. It's sound. A sound that only you have. I think in some ways, this is what Dr. Wright and Dr. Daniels were doing. It was at Boston University then that a young doctoral student named Martin Luther King Jr. comes under the tutelage of Dr. Howard Thurman. And Dr. Thurman becomes his spiritual guide and his pastor and his confidant in a nonviolent resistance movement during the civil rights time. After the book is published, Martin Luther King Jr. actually quotes Howard Thurman verbatim in his term paper when he says, you are not slaves, you are God's children. This sense of dignity and worth of the human person is the fundamental theme of Howard, Howard Thurman's life. And it also becomes the fundamental theme for Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. And it becomes the fundamental theme of the civil rights movement. In 1958, you know, the king was stabbed in an assassination attempt. And Thurman goes to, to see King in the hospital. And, and while others offer all kinds of political and psychological advice, Thurman offers a different kind of advice. It's a pastoral advice to him. This movement has started and it's come to a fever pitch. And Thurman says to him, you have started a movement that has taken on a life of its own. But I strongly encourage you to take some time off in silence and solitude to begin to listen for what your role is going to be in this movement. And Thurman was intensely interested in the spiritual well-being of Martin Luther King Jr. Because he sees the tragic dimensions of this struggle and he can foresee the danger. And he knows that spiritual strength is the essence. So he encourages Martin Luther King Jr. to take a personal inventory and ask, where do I go from here? And if you don't know, this was the last published title of Martin Luther King Jr.'s last book. It was in that period of healing and reflection and silence that King becomes this fully devoted follower of nonviolence, which to him is spiritual. He does not see it as a tactic for social change. He did it in the beginning, but because of Howard Thurman's, because of Howard Thurman's influence, he sees that this is the heart of social change. Now, so much more could be said. It's 614. So I'll just say this. He started trust funds for needy black students so they could go to college. He taught and loved his students. He traveled to the Middle East, and he went to Africa where he longed to, where he found that he longed to connect with his grandmother and the ancestors he ever he, he never knew on april 4th of 1968 martin luther king jr was killed and howard thurman was the one who was invited to eulogize dr king and he said this martin was the living epitome of a way of life that rejected physical violence as a lifestyle of a morally responsible people he was able to put at the center of his own religious personal experience a searching ethical awareness. Thus organized religion as we know it as a society found itself with its back against the wall. So may we harness the energy of our bitterness and may we make it available to the unfinished work which Martin has left behind. Friends, uh, I think we'll just leave with this. 
the sacrament that we practice, coming to the Lord's table, is central to the theology of Howard Thurman. But not only that, it actually shapes our identity. When we come to this table, we remember a story that says, that actually demonstrates that violence does not have to have, to have the last word. It's the place where we actually remember Paul's words that the barriers of hostility have been broken and barriers like denominations and faith and race and ethnicity, well, here they're destroyed by way of Jesus the Messiah. This is why we practice an open table. This is why we say it's for all. The table of the Lord is the way in which we practice this story of goodness and grace into our lives. It's a way by which we can join the great saints, the great cloud of witnesses. It's a way where we can say that our meeting together at a table actually saves us.